Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains podcast with me, Chris, and today we welcome back James, who did an episode with us on India, exploring the unexplored, I called it, in India. Uh, you can go and check that out. James reached out to me and said, listen, I've got a couple of places I'd love to talk about, India and Nepal. Which one? And I said, both. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode too, in addition to the India we have a look. He took walks around the Annapurna circuit, exploring Nepal, walking with elephants. We have a brief encounter with Everest Base Camp and a quick discussion on altitude at the end. So I do hope you enjoy it. If you've got any feedback or if you want to come on the show, please let me know. But otherwise, let's just jump straight into it. Hello, welcome to Between the Mountains podcast. And today we welcome back James who came and spoke to us about India last month. James, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks, Chris. It's uh, um, nice to be back and uh, I'll try and keep it a bit briefer this time. I, I saw that you described it as epic, so I'll try and keep it, it a was, bit It was, yeah. <laughs> so if you haven't listened to the India episode, it, it was it was so good. Uh, James has been to India several times. He's got a huge love for for the country and so much knowledge. And it's essentially, uh, it's, a, it's a nearly two hour episode of just detail after detail, anecdotes, unusual information. I called it Exploring the Unexplored in India. So if you have any fascination or want to go to India at all, then I recommend giving that episode a listen if you haven't already. So, But, um, but James, what, what are we speaking about today? Well, we're not going very far away from India, but it's certainly a very different sort of feeling country, uh, yeah. Nepal. Um, I've been to Nepal twice now. We went end of 2018, December. I went with my wife. Um, we both love mountains and we both love climbing and trekking. Uh, and then I loved it so much that I convinced one of my one of my children, one of my boys, to come with me last year to do Everest Base Camp. Um, so I've been twice and um, yeah, look, uh, everything, I mean, my dream since I was a kid was to see the mountains of the Himalayas, and uh, they didn't, didn't disappoint. They were just astounding. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, all my childhood dreams came true when I saw all those mountains there, all the 8,000 metre mountains that I saw. So that's, that's really what it was about. It was just simply um, the two of us said, well, what do you really want to see? And um, we both had near-life, near-death experiences about five years ago. Um, and within about two months of each other, my wife and I, we thought we've got to really live our lives now. Oh, geez. I wanted to see the Himalayas. Yeah, it was just, um, I, I, get, I developed an allergy that um, you know, led to life-threatening reactions. So and it, my wife had to resus me. So I was oh, very wow. lucky. Yeah, very lucky. Um, and we just both decided that we, you know, we've had a great life, but we thought, no, we've got to start seeing the things we really want to see. Um, and so that's why we went to the Himalayas. And yeah, that's basically what made me go to Nepal. Perfect. So in this episode, we're going to be covering quite a few aspects of Nepal. Uh, we're going to be briefly touching on Everest Base Camp, but I know you've got a very, quite an important anecdote to give just as far as advice to other people. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you want to know specifically more about Everest Base Camp, I have also done an episode on that as well um, last month. So uh, you can go back and listen to that. But we are still going to be touching on it a little bit in this episode. But uh, I suppose we should just dive straight into the itinerary, James. Uh, so, yeah, so what sure. was day one? Well, I'm going to talk about my first trip 
which was the one with my wife where we went to the Annapurna region, um, yeah. which is um, the, was the middle of Nepal, up against the uh, Tibetan border, whereas uh, Everest is more northeast and uh, the Annapurna, Annapurna region is northwest. And they're probably the two most famous trekking areas in the Himalayas. And we picked Annapurna. We, we were debating for a long time which way, which way to go. And we just asked a few people who'd done... In fact, we met a guy who actually was a very famous mountain climber, Soren Cruz. And he'd climbed Mount Everest, I think, half a dozen times. He's actually oh, wow. one of the most famous current um, mountain climbers on Earth. And he just happened to give a lecture in Adelaide. Uh, and we met him and we talked about... Yeah, look, we're not going to climb mountains, but if we're going to trek them, would you go to Annapurna or Everest? And he suggested this rare, this new um, trek that they just opened uh, called the Copra Ridge. And it takes up to Dorligiri, which I'll talk about. And he said, look, the great thing about that one is you, you're you going to be exposed to so many different climates. You're going to be going through jungle, you're going to be going through alpine, you're going to be going through almost like Tibetan desert. So, And you're also going to be exposed to lots of different villages, um, lots of different cultural aspects. And he said, you'll get everything you get in the, in the Everest other than you don't see Everest. But you'll also see um, all of that, still see massive mountains. So we thought, look, we'll do that. So that's what led us to there. We, just if I go from our itinerary, um, we flew into Kathmandu um, and um, the airport in Nepal is interesting to say the least. Security um, is probably how I remember it when I was a young kid in the 90s. Uh, it's, it was, there wasn't much security, let's put it that way. Um, obviously, they're not too worried about terrorism in Nepal, which is pleasing because it wasn't, it's certainly the least policed um airport i've ever been in and uh, big shock compared to india which has got such tight security um so we went straight from Kathmandu. the morning after we stayed in a hotel in Kathmandu, and we flew straight to pokhara um the morning after pokhara is the second biggest city in nepal um Kathmandu is i think six million um pokhara is about one million but it's a it's about a hour and a half flight and you sort of follow the um, you follow the Himalayas the whole way, like you just in the you follow the foothills of the Himalayas. So the the flight, if you do have a flight to Pokhara, asked to be put on the right hand side of the plane because you'll see Everest. We saw Everest. We saw nearly every eight thousand meter mountain all along the way. So the trip alone was spectacular. So it's uh, that's one tip: ask for that right hand side of the plane when you're flying to Pokhara. I like that. Yeah, it's a cool spot too. Pokhara is a really, um, it's a very different feel to Kathmandu. I'll talk about Kathmandu later, but Pokhara is on a lake called Lake Fiwa, and it's stunning lake. If the weather's clear like it was when we were there, the blue skies, you've got these 8,000 metre mountains like Annapurna, which are mirrored in the lake. So the lake is just a mirror of mountains. And ringed by mountains and they've got you can see hang gliders emily it's one of the best places in the world to hang glide we didn't get time to do that but that would have been cool um but the lake they've got all these boats that the locals will 
push you out into the lake so you can watch the reflection of the mountains on the uh, lake itself. Great cafes. Um, I love my coffee and uh, the coffee there was as good as anything I've had in Australia. They are really very tourist oriented, oriented and it's a very cool town, cool vibe. Um, yeah, very, you, you feel like you're in the Alps, to be honest. It's not, it's not how you imagine, you know, Nepal to be, which is really a third world country. So that was that day. The next day we actually began our trek. So we went to a, by bus, which was interesting, to a town called Fedi. And um, it's on a river. I can't remember the river's name, but you follow a river the whole time. But the river, you, you go through the river a number of times in the bus. Um, there's there's plunging gorges where sometimes the wheels are right on the edge of the road. I'm sure it would have been in the world's most dangerous roads television show. It was frightening. I it was you're on dirt, you're skidding. Um, but we got there. Um, but this was the really interesting about the Annapurna walk was you only start at 800 meters, which isn't that high. That's the height of our hills where I live here. Yeah. Um, Whereas when you start in Everest, when you fly into Lupi, you start at about 2,800 metres. So you start a lot lower down, but you climb a lot higher up. Annapurna's got a much bigger difference between the starting point and the end point. It's a lot more climbing. It's, it's actually, I found it actually more challenging in terms of climb, walking, but you didn't have the elevation start. So there was an advantage and disadvantage. But we, we got out of the bus and I, we didn't know where we were going to walk. And the chief sherpa said, you're walking up here. And we looked up at a ridge and it was just this stairway that just looked like it was never ending. I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan or not. Yes, yeah, I haven't seen the films in a while, but but yeah, yeah. I read the book. There's a, there's a stairway that Gollum takes um, Frodo up into Mordor called Kirifungal yeah. to come up to Shelob the giant spider. And yeah. it's like a vertical stair. Honestly, it felt like that. We went from we went from 800 meters to 2,000 meters, just up this one sphere. Um, <laughs> so 1,200 meter climb, and there was no break. It was just one stair after another. Um, and I, because we'd never trekked before in, in in Nepal, we'd done a lot of training. But we thought. I remember all of us when we finished because we we're all so quiet because it was so hard and I think we we're all frightened because we were when we got up to the first village where we stopped that night called Dampus. Once we started relax, we thought, "Is this going to be the whole trip? Is it going to be this hard?" We knew it was going to be challenging. Well, that was that was amazing. And in fact, out of both trips that I've done, that still remains the hardest day ever. Yeah. Um, it was extreme. Three hours, I think, it took us just of non-stop stairs. Um, but did, you feel, did you directly feel the effects of the altitude from the bottom to the top of the stairs? No, not at 2,000 metres. <laughs> you just felt the effect on your legs. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, not, not your, like, when we got further up, but as we got higher up into the mountains, we definitely could feel the oxygen. But not on those stairs. I was only thinking oh, in, no, in, okay. in such a, a quick elevation difference. I didn't know if you would yeah, have lightheadedness or anything. I don't think so. I think we were just puffed. No, I think we were just puffed because we were puffed. It was hard. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you could really you, you really notice the difference when you start you know getting up over three and a half thousand meters particularly is when you really start to notice the elevation change. That's when you notice the oxygen. Um, 
So we got up to Dampest, beautiful village on a ridge, um, and there's rhododendron forest all around you. Now, we went in December, so we were there at the wrong time, but I, I didn't realise when they said the rhododendron forest, the whole trip until we got up, up above the snow line was rhododendron forest, kilometre upon kilometre, and that. I've seen photos since. If you can go there in April, May, when the rhododendron forests are fully ablaze, it's, it must be amazing to look at. Uh, but it was just rhododendron trees when we were there. But we got up, when we got there, um, we the morning after, we stayed in tea houses, which are pretty cool places. I'm, I'm not sure if the other person spoke about tea houses on the other talk. Uh, not in depth, no. So... If I can just talk about tea houses, because it's how most people stay when they where they stay in the treks. So they're usually really cheap. They're usually um, between two and five pounds. Yeah. Okay. So they're cheap, cheap, but they do trick you a little bit. But they're still really cheap because if you have a shower, some of the lower level ones will have showers. As you get high, they don't have hot water, but down this level there were showers. They you would usually charge you the same amount as for the bed, they charge you the same amount for the shower. And you're expected right. to eat there too. I mean, there's not restaurants in these. These are villages. They don't, they don't have many restaurants. They're all, you, where you stay is where you're expected to eat. And the food's about the same price. And if you get Wi-Fi, most of the places have Wi-Fi. I was amazed both places when I was right up the top, even the top of Everest, <laughs> base camp, there was still Wi-Fi, which is pretty amazing. Um, but you pay for it. You pay about the same per day. You pay about five pounds for the Wi-Fi for 24 hours. Um, but it was a great way to touch base with family. Um, yeah. So we woke up in the morning after, and they said it's one of the it was. It was. They said make sure you get up at sunrise for the view over the, the mountains. So we woke up, and that's when we realised we're in the Himalayas. Because when we got up to the top, end of the day, it's often clouded over. In the morning, it, traditionally in the Annapurna region, it's clear as clear, and that's what it was like the whole trip. Very clear in the morning, like not a cloud in the sky. Then the clouds would roll in by mid-afternoon. And then usually just as sun was setting, they'd start to break through again. And it was sort of a, it was almost like a, I don't know if it was a time of year, but that was like the constant pattern. But, you know, when we were, when we woke up, right in front of us was this ridge from right to left of some of the most spectacular mountains in the world. Machachapari, which is the holy mountain of, um, the Nepal people um, they're not even allowed to climb it nobody's ever climbed that mountain it's uh, 7,000 metres high um, you've got Annapurna South which is a very famous mountain which is 7,200 metres and they're right in front of you and the sun was shining on them and they look like they're on fire the snow was bright red it was just stunning and the mountain range you, you, you could, as far as you could see to the right you could see six to eight thousand meter mountains and as far as you could look to the left it was the same just this long never-ending ridge of mountains um in that bright red for the proper about half an hour it was bright red before the sun came up fully on so yeah stunning place Beautiful. we then just kept walking through um one village after the other and the, the villages in this part of nepal are called gurung villages they are hindu whereas everest is more um very much buddhist um, this part of India is very much um, a Hindu part. And so uh, it's home of the Gurkhas. If you, you know the Gurkhas who 
yeah. the famous fighters. So these are where all the Gurkhas come from. And I still, we met many Gurkhas who had, who had fought for English wars in the Korean War and fought a, were very proud to have worked for the English, uh, fought for the English. Yeah. Uh, you go to homes where the, you see these swords, which are just amazing. They're not, and they're such gentle people, yet they were supposedly some of the most fearsome fighters on earth. Yes. Um, very proud of their history too. Very proud of their history. Rightly so, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've said, I don't think they, they told us that the only reason the Pope, they said China was ruled by the English, India was ruled by the English, Burma was ruled by the English, the English didn't get to us, they were too scared. That's <laughs> what they said. So, um, but they still love the English. Interesting, they fought for the English, but not rather than. Well, we have a Gurkha regiment in our, in our military. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, I mean, that such a famous unit, aren't they? Yeah, there's a lot of stories from from like World War Two era, mm. where of of just Gurkhas being completely ballsy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and look, you wouldn't know it, like I said, when you meet them because they seem so unassuming and yeah. so unga. And I, one of the other things that stunned us, Hattie and I kept saying when we look back, was how healthy these people were. Um, I mean, all the food, uh, all of the, there's no roads. So the only they only can it's they whatever they produce is what they eat. Um, because we're at low, much lower elevations than Everest, um, they just had fields of you had rice fields, the most stunning rice fields up up the mountains. You had um, potato fields. They had every vegetable possible, and of course they had chooks and goats as well. Uh, chickens, sorry, that's Australian, so chooks, uh, chickens and and uh, and goats as well. Um, and they, um, you would just eat, you, you got the freshest of fresh food as a result. And I reckon it's that and, and the, um, probably the air, because the air was so unpolluted. No cars and you're high up. We were meeting women who were in, we met one woman that I just never forget. She was down, on, right down on her haunches, down on her knees, till, um, working on her field of um, vegetables. And... The chief Gurkha asked her, chief Sherpa, chief Sherpa asked how old she was. She was 102, and she Whoa. was still in the she was still working in a garden. Yeah, amazing. Wow. And there was another lady, 98, doing the same thing. Everybody's and they look good too. It's not just a, you know, not only were they amazingly active for their age, they you, you could have thought they were 72, not 102. Yeah. And um, so there was something in about that area that was obviously very healthy. Um, we went. The next night we went to a town called Landrook, which actually dropped us down. We, I've, I've got the elevations. We went down to 1,600 metres, and that's right at the foot of Annapurna South. Um, again, even a better sunrise the morning after. Annapurna South, you've got the white, obviously the white of the snow and the glaciers, and again the red. Every morning in Annapurna, uh, the sunrises were just um, next level. Yeah. Um, and I can say having been there versus Everest, there's no comparison for the sun. The sunrise is in the Annapurna region because I think the mountains aren't, you're not hemmed in by the mountains. The mountains are in front of you. Then I think you, you act, it probably allows better light in, but the, the sunset, sunrises particularly were just, and the sunsets at times were just amazing. Um, for sure. The next day we went down through rice terraces. We went down to a river, went across the uh, suspension bridges, which we fell in love with. Um, again, I don't know if 
your other speaker spoke about suspension bridges, but um, that was one of our absolute loves, you know, going across these glacial rivers. Sometimes you were three, four hundred metres, one of them, particularly in Everest, was three, four hundred metres above the river. And you're on a very narrow swinging bridge that if you jumped, you'd actually be moving pretty quickly. Um, but it was fun, a lot of fun. And we, we just couldn't wait for the next uh, suspension bridge. Oh, uh, a lot nice. of fun. <laughs> Yeah, they were fun. They were real. I don't know if everybody found them quite as much fun as we did, but they were. <laughs> but they were. They were a lot of fun. Yeah, every time you put a step, you feel the whole um, bridge vibrate, and the rivers were just stunning. This, you know, being glacial like that, really bright blue. Um, we went with friends who actually one of them was actually an Australian Olympian kayaks, um, kayak slalom climber guy, and he said some of the best places in the world to do what he did were in these rivers. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, he was saying it's just amazing to do. Even when we were there, I think two people died doing um, kayaking these rivers. They're pretty full on. But, you know, just stunning to cross over. Um, so we went across this river called the Modicola to a town called Gandruk, which is quite a real known. It's, the, it's like the centre of the Gurkhas. So we, we get back up to, this time we got up to 2,100 metres, so a little bit higher. And Gandrit was just stunning. We made it a tradition until we got higher. When you got over 3,000 metres, our Sherpa said, no more beers, because it's dangerous. He said he's seen people drink beer, even young people drink beer, on the Everest trip particularly, and would drink the beer, and they wouldn't wake up the morning after. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, because their oxygen levels are low, and alcohol is obviously a... Depressant, it reduces your um, respiration, your breathing rate. Yeah. So they just they just die in their sleep. Um, he said he's had, 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 I reckon he told me two, three times that's happened. So he made a rule that we um, wouldn't drink alcohol before, um, after we reached 3,000 metres. So we made sure we drank plenty before. Um, yeah. And we'd made a tradition, we'd sit out and watch the sunset because we're always in camps we, where we stayed in tents and we'd, uh, sit out with some chairs, find a really great spot to look over the mountains, watch the sunset. It was freezing. We're talking about minus five, minus ten. But, yeah, with a beer, and uh, the beers in Nepal were really good. We we, we fell in love one called, not just because we were buyers because it was in the Gurkha region, but it was called the Gorkha beer. Great beer. Um, and we'd have a Gorkha beer every night, watch them in the sunset as the sun went down until we were too cold. And then you'd move into the... And it was a real sort of a ritual every every night. You'd go into the communal living area. They put on a uh, a fire, which was usually full of yak dung. I mean, that's the only. There's no trees once you get a bit higher. And thankfully, they're not chopping what a down, what's left down. So they're very environmentally conscious in their police. So yak dung's the most readily available um, heat source. It's an interesting smell when it heats, but that's yeah. not the words. But it's a, it's a lot of it's um, but it's um, yeah, it was great. You know, we, that was just it was, and you'd have dinner. I couldn't believe how quickly you go to bed. You were so tired from the hiking that you, you'd all of us, and you know, there were people from there. I think the oldest were in their sixties. We had plenty of people in their early twenties, right through. We had a group of twelve, um, wow. but we all were asleep by um, we're all asleep by um, seven thirty, eight o'clock. If it was really? past eight o'clock, it was. Um, oh, well, you're just so tired. Yeah. And there's nothing. And um, there's nothing you can do. It's pitch black. 
that they only got a limited amount of time to have the heating. There's only a, there's only X amount of yak done. Um, so they put it on when you're eating and for about an hour after and then they just stop stoking up the fire and it gets very cold inside very quickly. So you're then back off to your tents. Uh, we, we stayed in a combination of tea houses and tents because this area is really quite remote. Uh, Gandrook's not, but the rest of it was in tents as well. Yeah. Um, we uh, Next day we climbed 600 metres, so we started really climbing. We're up to 2,700 then in a town called Tadapani. Um, and there was rhododendrons, magnolia forests, waterfalls, very pretty, uh, lots of rainforests, ferns, um, very lush this part. Um, very Lord of the Rings-ish again, like just lots of really cool trees. And uh, you'd, you'd still get the mountains on the views as well, but it was very, very much uh, rainforest. So very different to down low, which was much more cultivated. Yeah. The next day we went another 700 metres up again, so now we're getting high. And that's when you, you talked about the elevation. We're now, I think, we went to a place called Baizi Kaka, which means something, I think they said, like, stinky, means something in Nepal is like stinky, yeah, stinky, um, stinky goat. <laughs> so not, not a very attractive name, <laughs> but it was something <laughs> stinky. Um, but it wasn't stinky, it was a beautiful setting. Um, but we're now, I think we're up, yeah, we're up to about 3,500 metres now. You read my mind. I was going to ask uh, of what yeah. altitude are we, we getting to now? Then, So yeah. we're getting about 3,500, which is a little bit higher than Nanchi Bazaar on the Everest camp. And that's where most people start noticing a little bit of shortness of breath. We, what I noticed was I was very lucky I didn't get sick. But you tend to get occasionally a mild headache. But it's only mild. Um, we're very lucky. The group that we had... There was only one guy who got sick, and that was when we got up to the top, and I'll talk about that later. But even yeah. his wasn't too bad. But look, most of us got an occasional mild headache. Um, and whilst we're on that as well, um, yeah. I uh, at the time that this episode comes out, um, last month, I did an interview with a guy called John Gupta, uh, and he's climbed Everest three times, uh, and he's got loads of experience. And off the back of that, I then also bought a quick seminar with him for Altitude, and he talks through uh, what, what you're experiencing and he he said so many times hydration he said little and often hydration 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 that's the big key to to, to getting through altitude there's a little yeah, tip for everyone listening I think, yeah i think that's a great point i mean we can only we i guess we did exactly that so we can't yeah. say well with the time we didn't do it we were much worse but that was we had a great we went with a great company um fantastic support group and we had yeah. just by chance i had the same chief sherpa who took me to annapurna 12 months later took me to everest and that was just purely coincidence it was really oh, cool nice. i had the same sherpa <laughs> he was so excited too um did he recognize you beg your pardon did he did he recognize you oh yeah absolutely oh 100 yeah and um yeah it was great he was great both times and he, he actually helped save my son's life which we'll talk about later yeah um, with when he got sick but um yeah he did say exactly that i mean every night you'd get a you before you go to bed he'd talk about what to expect tomorrow what you're going to see and he was at this stage no more alcohol um he said exactly what you just said uh, that john gupta said drink more than you think you need mm. uh, we didn't take the, there's an altitude tablet, I can't think of its name, that 
uh, they recommend as well. Yeah, I um, I'll put it in the show notes. I got um, it. Yeah, we got we took it because we were told by our doctors, our travel doctor, to get it. Um, we didn't use it um, because he said don't. He said I will tell you if you need to use it. He he's one of he's the leading sherpa of this quite large company, and um, he said I will tell you if you need to start taking it because yeah. he said. There are a lot of side effects. Dymox. thank you. That's the one. Thanks, Chris. That's the one, and yeah. One of the biggest side effects is you'll just urinate the whole time. Yeah. Which, you know, for guys, okay, and there were plenty of trees and boulders, but for the ladies, probably wasn't their most favourite thing to do if they had to. Um, so we didn't. And look, as I said, only one person got sick in the whole trip, and it wasn't bad sickness either. Yeah. So we're up basically car car. Now we're getting really high. The trees have gone, and this beautiful. Um, in Australia, you'd think it was actually uh, the summer when all the wheat and all the grasses have gone yellow, but I think this is just because of the elevation. There was knee-height yellow grass just everywhere. These hills covered in this beautiful yellow grass, and then of course you got the mountains, the massive mountains behind. It was just some of the most beautiful walking. It's a gorgeous and, setting, yeah. Oh, it is, and you're above the clouds. That was the weirdest oh. thing. You actually walked through clouds and we thought, oh, no, it's going to be all covered in cloud. We're not going to see anything. Well, you get so high now. When you come up, we were above the clouds. And the weirdest thing is you could hear planes. And they were flying to Jomson, which is part of the Annapurna circuit. Yeah. And they were, we could hear them, but they were below us at this point. So they were flying below us, which under the clouds. That's nuts. It's, yeah, it is. It's a weird, weird sound, weird feeling. Um, but it was freezing, but you know, um, a lot of fun. Uh, the girls, we, one of the girls was an absolute fanatical yoga teacher. Uh, not fanatical, it was in crazy, but she loved doing it. And the girls made a tradition every night to go out with it. They had yoga mats and they do yoga on the uh, mountainside. Yeah, it was quite cool to just watch them do it in front of the yeah. So that we did, the boys decided we'd drink beers or that by the station we're drinking chai tea, but um, it was a lot of fun to see that. Um, lots of monkeys, that's the other thing. There's a lot more wildlife in this side because it's a little bit more forested, even there. So we were seeing lots of uh, macaques and um, a lot of, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the other monkeys, lungurs, which have got, be lungurs are beautiful monkeys um, in India and Nepal. They've got very long tails, white to grey faces, um, beautiful, um, inquisitive, they'll sit like humans. Um, everything that, uh, I think, yeah, macaques can be quite scary. These guys are really chilled, and there was a lot of those on this trek. Um, so that was really cool. And this was the first time we uh, still got beautiful views of Annapurna South because we were still heading towards it. Uh, the whole trek, actually, the whole trek called the Copper Ridge. The Copper Ridge is actually a ridge of Annapurna South. So... Um, and the reason we picked this, like I said, was we wanted to go off grid a bit. We heard Annapurna Circuit had been really destroyed because now you can actually drive the whole way around. And so yeah. a lot of people said they'd done it and that you were walking on roads with dust. There were trucks building the roads going past and they said it's not like it used to be. Um, and we wanted something a bit more challenging than Annapurna Base Camp because they said that was easy. Um, so we want to find something hard like the circuit, but really off the grid. And that was the thing about this whole trip, which I'll say now. 
we we would walk days and we were the only people other than the villagers there were no trekkers and it was that made it so special when i compare it to everest base camp where um there were so many people and we were we went into base camp in december um people say if you go october september october april may sometimes you have there's a lineup to keep walking you know because there's that many people we were walking days as i said without some days whole days without seeing one trekker um wow. yeah and it was still worth it the mountains were stunning and at this stage when we got the basic car car we could actually see Dordogiri, which is one of the most beautiful mountains in the world it's also the eighth highest um, it's eight thousand two hundred meters so this is the first time i saw an eight thousand meter mountain um other than the plane so to see one in the flesh right in front of you it's a classic mountain it's like triangular your classic triangle absolutely beautiful uh, very evidently very hard to climb harder than everest to climb in terms of technical difficulty yeah um, you need ropes and an actual yeah, climbing yeah. ability absolutely um yeah. absolutely beautiful then the ne- day six um was probably yeah no not properly i think it was our favorite day it was we went up to copper ridge which is the name of the trek because it's the um the end point for many people um it's only 300 meter climb but we actually went down 700 meters and then had to go up a thousand meters oh, and wow. <laughs> yeah that was that's the hardest dampest in terms of steepness that one when i said we came off the bus and we got up the the golem stairs yeah that was the most that was the most challenging three hours i've ever done but this would be the most challenging eight to nine hours I've ever done. It was, I mean, it was absolutely beautiful though. We were walking on those hills, well, they were more than hills, the mountains with the golden grass. Yeah. Sometimes they call it Hunter's Ridge because that's where hunters go and it's very small. A lot of it, the footpath was only as wide as your legs. And on each side, you're walking on this narrow ridge, razor sharp ridge almost, like sometimes only two three meters wide and on each side of was a three to a hundred to a thousand meter drop um so you you could never take your eyes off where you were walking as beautiful as it was and if you wanted to take a photo you you, you would t- uh, he told us you must stop because he said people will fall and die here if you get your if you move your camera yeah. up and you look back before you know it, you'll be stepped backwards and you're down the ridge. Yes. Um, yeah. It was that steep. It was that sharp. But it was just stunning. And the whole way you're walking, you've got these golden hills. Uh, and behind them, you've got Annapurna, Dorligiri. And, um, yeah, look, it, it was one of the most beautiful days of walking I've ever done. But it was, I can't pretend it wasn't hard and it wasn't, it was a bit scary, but we loved it absolutely loved it and at this stage we knew it was getting cold it was freezing the toilets um even when you, we got to copper ridge eventually the actual lodge where we stayed um the toilets were frozen um so you know it, when you get up in in, in um, nepal trekking you, where we stayed we always had western toilets but they weren't flush toilets you'd have to put buckets in yeah um and you weren't allowed to you without going into too much detail but it's, i think these sort of things are good to know because you don't get told it much um toilet paper you don't put it in the toilet there's a bin you just put it in an open bin next to it and they'll burn it to amazing the, 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's all open air to a degree. I mean, there's, there's privacy, but it's not as rank as it sounds. But you can't put it in, the, they just don't have flushing systems. So yeah. uh, you can only flush excrement, not tissues. Um, but if you're willing at this point to, to grizz out a trek like this, then I'm sh- I, I don't believe that that's something that would phase you massively. No, I, so. I, mean, we're, I mean, we I think you're right. Anybody who goes up there, both places, where you're doing the Everest region around the Puna region, I'm sure you can pay a little bit more. Um, not where we went, because this is really remote. But I'm sure in the Everest region, you could probably stay in some tea houses and get... Until you get to the last two or three nights, you can probably get four flushing toilets and so on. But you'd pay, I don't know, it, it'd be a lot of work to find them. Uh, we didn't find them. We didn't care. You just get used to it. It's just part of life. And you all stink. There's no showers. Up this high, you're, you're going for 10 days without a shower. You think you're going to stink, but you probably do. But everybody else has got the same smell. So you don't notice it. Yeah, it'd be very different if you had. And I think that's some of the fears people have. You don't notice your smell. <laughs> I don't think we did. Um, it's only when you have the shower when you get back to Kathmandu you think, oh my gosh, how dirty was I? Yeah. But, it's just, um, but it, you know, every night you'd have. We were staying in tents that were um, tents that were they were their permanent permanent tents and permanent sites with a proper brick, you know, a proper uh, area where you'd eat. But the tents, you, I could. I'm over six foot and I could walk straight in. So I didn't okay. have to duck. So there's plenty of space for two people. We had um, beds, you know, little uh, beds off the ground, which made a huge difference because it's so cold up there. You, the the tents would ice up inside overnight. Yeah. Um, but you never feel, and the, we were provided with sleeping bags that were for this region. Yeah, because overnight it could get down to minus 15, minus 20 um, at, this, at this height. Um, but you never feel cold until you got out. When you got out, you knew about it. <laughs> um, and they'd come out with a little bowl of water, the Sherpas, every morning. That's how they'd wake you up saying, washy, washy. And it was a little warm bowl of water. Well, that was your bath. And they'd, <laughs> they'd come with a cup of tea every morning too. That was your first thing. They'd knock on your tent and say, washy, washy, the water be there and there'd be a cup of tea there for you. And yeah, it was probably just tea bag tea, but I'll tell you, it was the best tea because it, you're so cold and have a hot tea in your hand is just amazing. Sure. Uh, those little those little things that you, you just a little luxuries up there, but they mean a lot. Um, so we got up to um, Copper Ridge, which is a really now I, I actually have heard a couple of that was December 18 we went there. And it's now getting a lot more traction. I've noticed because I've, I've you know, gone to YouTube. There are a lot more people, a lot of the Instagrammers now going up Copper Ridge. So I suspect it's losing its uh, remoteness that what we had because it only had opened up the year before. But yeah. this was a brand. They hadn't even finished the tea house. They'd done half and the other half was still being built. It's, it's at 3,700 metres, so it's a long way up. And it literally is like a triangular ridge, and you're right at the end of the tip of the triangle, the 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 um, lodge, and the lodge right at the tip, right out in front of your door is Dorlagiri and Kala Gandaki, which is the deepest canyon on earth. Oh wow! Grand Canyon is the largest, but this is a it's a three and a half thousand meter deep gorge. <laughs> yeah. And you just can't see the bottom. You cannot see the bottom. No. 
Um, I mean, it, yeah, straight off Dorligiri, straight down Dorligiri, down to that. And you, then you can see Annapurna itself, Annapurna 1, which is, I think, yeah, the 10th highest in the world, 8,100 metres. So you at this point, you've got a view, a 180-degree view of Dorligiri, Annapurna, Annapurna South. It is just a mind-blowing view. And we got there and it was full of cloud, like I said. We were sitting having dinner and you, they had full-length windows. And just when, you, when light was about to go, when it was going dark, some of the mountains came through the mist and they were, again, red from the sunset, but they would come and go through the mist. Just bizarre. It looked, it looked surreal. Um, yeah. Amazing city. But to be right on this edge of this mountain, because you're on this ridge, and you're right at the edge of the ridge, and uh, as I said, the view is just stupendous. Um, frozen solid all around. Uh, it was freezing up there, but just absolutely spectacular. If somebody wants to go to a place that's, um, still wants to see the massive mountains, but doesn't want to do the the Everest trek because the, the only other bad thing about Everest trek is you go back the same way you come. This trek oh, was okay. a, this was a circle, it was a true circuit trek, so you never went back to the same place. Right. Okay. Um, that was going to be one of my questions. Um, yeah. Because uh, they, your Sherpas are so lovely, and I, I was I was thinking at the end, do they basically just go right? Okay, bye, and just take you back down the same route. <laughs> No, I know they're dying, and I mean, you, you tip them at the end. There's a bit of a ritual. Thanks, it's a, you get told what you spoke because you don't pay. They don't you don't pay much for them, but so we tip them quite handsomely, and they were very excited about that. But yeah, again, it wasn't a dear holiday. Um, yeah, I think um, it cost us for the 16 day trek. This was 16 days in the mountains. It cost us. I've got, got to go back to pounds, sixteen hundred pounds each. Wow! And that's, that's for your flight. That's for your in, no. That's for your internal flight from uh, Kathmandu to Pokhara. That's yep. for all your accommodation, including staying in a five-star hotel in Kathmandu, um, and all your your tea houses and your permanent tent sites in this walk, and all your food, all your drinks. They, all your porters, they carry all, the only thing you carry is your day pack, which is just your camera and your water. Yeah. Um, they carry all your gear. I mean, they're carrying 20 kilograms. Yeah, and they're carrying 60 kilograms plus their own things up the mountains. Jesus. These guys are amazing. The Sherpas are just the most, I, I think, the Nails. most super inspiring people. The, the amount of stuff they carry is out of this world. And we, they let us try it once. Because they carried all over that from a little head strap. Yeah. Honestly, I, I couldn't hold it for about thirty seconds without feeling that my head was going to snap. <laughs> but they do that evenly from since they were teenagers. They they get conditioned to it. Yeah. Um, and if they do really well, they go from being porters to sherpas. Like actually, well, they're all sherpas, but as in guides. Um, yeah. Sherpas race, as I got described, they're not actually. I I thought that what well, I always thought sherpas are being. The title of what guides were from Nepal, but until I realised very, they made it very clear. No, this is our race. We are Sherpa people. Yes. Um, but we could, but that everybody associates guides as being Sherpas. Um, but it was they were amazing, and so we, um, we were giving amazing food too. We had chefs come with us. This is all part of that. The chefs would come. They would get the fresh fruit and vegetables from each of the villages we stayed at. And the chooks, the chickens, sorry, they get the chickens and 
So obviously the chickens were fresh. So we get fresh fruit every day. Um, we also, I've got this allergy I was describing, I'm allergic to wheat, um, which is a pretty unfortunate allergy to have. And I only developed it in my um, recent years. So one thing, I don't want to go up there and have an allergic reaction. Uh, so I told them that as long as it's gluten-free, I'm okay. But they were amazing. They, they'd made breads for me that were made out of millets, made out of rice flour. Uh, and they had it all there. Millet was growing in the, in the mountains. So there didn't seem to be anything that was too hard for them as well. They're beautiful people and so generous. Um, so coming back to uh, the um, trek, this was probably uh, another highlight day was this one. We stayed two nights at Copper Ridge because we went up to Kaya Lake, which is the end point, which goes to 4,600 metres. So you're getting a long way up there. And um, you're right up, up against Annapurna at this point on the Fang Face. Do you know the Fang? Have you heard of the Fang Face? I have not, known. So it's considered one of the rock climbers nirvanas. It's Annapurna, like I said, is 8,100 metres and it's considered the the deadliest, deadliest mountain on earth. More deaths have, more people have tried to climb it die than any other mountain in the world. Yeah. And the Fang Face is the most infamous face on earth. It's a, it's like the Eiger in Switzerland, um, but even larger. And um, the lake is right at the foot of this. Um, Kaya Lake is a sacred Hindu lake right at the foot of the Fang Face. Um, so you've got this frozen lake, uh, which is sacred to the Hindus, right at the foot of Annapurna itself. Um, yeah, again, just the mountain centre at this stage is surrounded by seven, 8,000 metre mountains, all ringing around you now in a semicircle with a lake right in front of you. Just, just one of the most beautiful vistas I've ever seen. So we came back, and this is where the guy got a bit sick. Uh, one of the young guys, another James, 21, and there's a common theme here, and I'll talk about that when I yeah. briefly talk about my Everest experience. Uh, he raced ahead because uh, he was super fit, and he got sick. He got vomiting. He had severe headaches, migraineous headaches. He had to turn back um, because he, he got so sick. Yeah. Um, by the time he got back down to... Um, Copper Ridge, the, the, the uh, lodge, he was recovered. He just had to go to bed early. And he was fine the day after. So it was, he just went too quickly. Yeah. But it's amazing how quick it happens. And again, speed. To the, I don't know if John Gupta told you, but one of the other keys that we got told is don't go fast. Yes. In fact, I, Pace makes it I learned it from, uh, there's a podcast called the Amateur Traveller Podcast, which you yeah, yeah. would recommend. Um, and they were he did an episode on climbing Kilimanjaro and the woman said it's actually the people who go the slowest often have the best time because they're, they're not overexerting their bodies and they're letting their bodies adapt to the altitude yeah absolutely one of my just inside on that one of my closest friends who's a marathon runner she went up Kilimanjaro and again super fit obviously she actually went blind in the on that on the ascending to the summit she lost all sight so really? she had to be, she had, yeah, they had to walk her down. Two of the porters had to walk her down arm in arm. They couldn't carry her. 
they walked arm in arm. She was could not see a thing. She was completely blind for about four hours walking down. She couldn't see, and she said it was the scariest four hours of her life. She was crying Absolutely. the whole time. Well, you would be, yeah, wouldn't you? Vision well, is quite a thing to lose. She lost her eyesight and crying because she thought, am I going to fall? Um, and uh, she got her eyesight back, thankfully. But, yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the optic nerves which control your eyes are one of the first things to get damaged by um, low oxygen. So it's not uncommon, but it's bad enough all the other symptoms, but to go get blindness up there would be frightening to say the least. Yeah. And she raced up. That was her problem. She was she went up too quickly um, and was warned um, to not to. Um, but, you know, when you're young, you don't listen as much sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then, so this was at the highest we got to was 4,600 metres, which is still a long way up. Yeah. Um, then we, the next day, we left the top of the mountains. We went down to a place called Swantha. We dropped 1,300 metres. So we got down to 2,500 metres. So it's a massive drop. A very long day, but we were going now through conifer forests, still beautiful views, rice terraces like you see in Bali. But instead of Bali being up 50 metre hillsides, they were up, you know, 1,000 metre hillsides. So it was. Um, Rice terraces on steroids, absolutely beautiful. <laughs> um, day nine, we went to Gorapani, uh, which is back up to 3,200 metres. Gorapani is where a lot of treks, probably one of the most famous treks in Nepal is called the Poon Hill Trek. Okay. Uh, they call it a hill, but Poon Hill is 3,400 metres above sea level. Um, <laughs> don't think we call those hills in, Adla in Australia. Definitely uh, not in the UK. <laughs> oh, well, we don't even get close to that in Australia. I think our highest mountain is 2,400 metres. So, yeah, ours is um, 1,300. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't, oh, God, don't laugh too much at us. <laughs> <laughs> I've done Ben Nevis. It's a great walk, though. It's beautiful, um, yeah. It is. Poon Hill um, is very famous because it's when people want to do a trek but don't want to get up to really high elevations. And it's famous for its vista across the major mountains. The ones that I've that we got basically it's the same views we had, but you're a bit further away. But it's it is it is a great view if you get up early in the morning, really early, and it's freezing up there. Uh, and you can see again that 180 degree view of the mountains of all the massive one mountains: Dawlagiri, Annapurna, Annapurna South, Machichapari. Well, we got there. <laughs> we were there with about 500 other people because this is a very popular place to trek. And we saw nothing. It was just pure cloud. I mean, the, I'm so pleased that we got up so much closer and we've had such good weather, albeit freezing, but clear. Because it would have been such a disappointment if you go to Poon Hill and you saw nothing. Literally yeah. saw nothing. Um, then look, after that, there was more walking, three days walking back down to 800 metres again. So we... It was it was a lot of beautiful places through there, but you know nothing. Probably it was. It, we still got the beautiful views of the mountains. You're still going through stunning villages full of marigolds, and and the people are warm and friendly. Um, but we finished up and in Nayapur, which is a common place. I think that's where the Annapurna circuit starts as well. And we went by, back by bus to Pokhara, and then we flew back to Kathmandu. Um, Wow. And we spent a few days in Kathmandu, which is a really interesting city. Um, and I thought Delhi and Mumbai were busy, 
and although well, they are pale imitators of busy have to cat men do really? the track there is yeah it's even more manic um and the market squares there's just so many people but it's again i i, I love that sort of energy of people and you know women in saris and all and uh, then you've got the buddhist temples you've got the hindu temples great place to visit but it is busy um but it's just busy it's it's there's there's no fear the only the biggest danger you got is avoiding people on mopeds who just seem to be everywhere um but just to give you an example of how good how beautiful the people are i um was running across one of the roads trying to dodge the cars one of the main streets and i dropped my phone straight onto the road and we're talking of a five five lane so a ten lane road and there it was i could see it i, I didn't look, look where's my phone and i saw it and a car was about to drive over my phone and i, I wasn't worried about my phone but i had all my had a lot of my photos i i use a i love cameras but also had a phone so i could send photos quickly home and I thought, oh no, my photos. And a guy got off his moped and literally stopped the traffic to get my phone and brought it over to me because it would have been run over. Um, and that just sort of highlights to me again the Nepalese people. I, I talked you know, in the other podcast how friendly the Indians are. The Nepalese are just as friendly as the Indians, but they are so chilled. They've just got this really relaxed way of life. Um, great people some of the most beautiful natured people you'd ever meet. I, I, you know, the Nepalese people are just um, so engaging, um, just so beautiful. And they are just, maybe because they're surrounded by mountains, they're just so relaxed, they're great people. But Kathmandu is crazy, despite that. <laughs> um, if I can say some things that I recommend to do in Kathmandu, Everybody goes to the uh, markets. There's um, an area called Tamil, T-H-A-M-E-L, which is the real backpacker hangout. It is definitely touristy, but it's worth going to. There's rooftop bars after rooftop bars with really good food, great beer, great coffee. Um, not that I'm at that age now, but clubs uh, as well. Um, everything you could every type of food you could want want but it's really worth trying some nepalese food it's um really great food in nepal especially tamil uh, and the shopping there is so cool you can buy all the things you want for your treks you can buy and a good quality and really cheap some great souvenirs some beautiful handmade you know goods um scarves everything's there and again bartering 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 um and it's just so much fun to walk through. And one of the other things there that if you go to Tamil and anywhere in Nepal for that matter, you've got to try Momos. I don't, they're not big in Australia. I don't know if Momos have hit UK. Hopefully they have, because I'm stunned they're not big here. Do you, are Momos? It rings a bell, but I can't say I know what it is in the UK. So Momos are Nepalese and Tibetan dumplings. Okay um it's their traditional food so little dumplings so they'll be full of you know the white sort of rice paper but inside them will be pork with different spices or chicken or a veg vegetarian ones and you have them with a chili sauce or a, a peanutty sauce they just you usually eat yeah well i do a dozen <laughs> 
one of the guys who was on our yeah, base camp trip. Of Chinese dim sum dumplings. Yeah, it is. It's it's very similar. I mean, they're a form of dumpling, they're exactly the but they are different. They're specific. The Japanese do the gyoza. Um, okay. So it's like those, but they're they're different again. It, you know, every dumpling is slightly different. The dumplings in Nepal are just amazing, and you could get. We were buying a dozen dumplings at Momo's for um, three quid, three pounds. Um, so, and that, I know it was even cheaper than that. It was um, maybe three dollars Australian. So half that, just beautiful. And so we always, if you ever wanted to have a quick on the run sort of easy lunch, we'd have Momo's. We had a lot of Momo's when we were trekking too. But you'll see them everywhere in Kathmandu and Pokhara advertising for them because that's their sort of one of their national dishes and it's definitely worth doing. Um, we walked through Tamil, through all the markets, down to Durba Square. Durba Square is all their royal squares. It's where the royal family used to live before they were deposed. Uh, but the thing that I guess about Kathmandu and all the Kathmandu Valley was, you know, the massive earthquake in 2015 yeah. has really severely damaged. Um, Kathmandu was damaged, but when I, uh, the other places I went to were far worse. They were shocking. Um, so it's worth going to there. It's worth going through um, Bodnath, which is the largest uh, Buddhist stupa in the world, I think. It's over a thousand years old too. Wow. Um, with all the prayer flags, the uh, classic stupa, Get there if you can at sun, sunset because the sun's setting on it. It's peaceful. You've got all the butter lamps in the monasteries around being lit. There's the ceremonial chanting. Uh, the Buddhist monks will happily let you come into their um, into their monasteries and will show you around. The stupa you can walk around in a kora, so you're going to walk around clockwise. And just you don't realize this is a thousand years old and it's just absolutely beautiful. The, the holiest Hindu temple in, in Nepal is there too, called Pashupatnath, which is 300 years old, and it's much like some of the ones in India where they cremate their dead there. So when I've been there twice, they've been burning their dead on the river, right in front of the temple, which again can be a bit confronting, but it, they do it again with such grace that it doesn't feel, it feels, um, you know, it's very, it's very respectful uh, and it's worth going to, as long as you understand that there are, you will see people being burnt, dead, you know, people being burnt for cremations. Yeah. Um, I also went to the Monkey Temple. The Monkey Temple's up on a ridge and um, it's a World Heritage Site. It's another Buddhist temple, a smaller version of Bodnath, worth going to as well. Um, we then went to Bhaktapur, which is another old royal city. We stayed there in a homestay and I said in India, it's certainly here, I love homestays. Um, we were the, were the most lovely family who he was a it was also was a he took us around and did a tour of all the valley um, we would go we, the place was beautiful every night we'd sit around a log fire he had a log fire outdoor log fire that would sit around he'd come out with some um, drambui one night and we'd have another night we'd have a, a single malt squash a scotch it was a great guy, and this was we didn't art, we didn't pay for it. He would just come out with it, and I think that's I keep coming back. Yeah, if you can stay in homestays, you really get a different experience, and they're just so generous, and they're desperate. That's why we did it. We 
spoke to a few people who are experts. Soren Cruz, the one who told us, who climbed the Himalayas and said, stay in homestays because cities like Bhaktapur and Bhutan have been so destroyed by the earthquakes, they're craving tourists. Tourists are still scared to go back and they need the money back into their economies to rebuild these amazing yeah. UNESCO World Heritage Sites. I mean, a lot of the towns were between 500 and 1,000 years old and you know, back to poor, half of it was shaken to, to crumble. Same with Bataan. So they said they really need tourists. So we, we loved it. Maybe, I, I think that's how they would be with everybody. I don't think it's just because there's not that many tourists going there now. I think that's just their personalities, but it's worth going to Bhaktapur. Just absolutely beautiful place. Lots of narrow alleys, artisans, um, temples, another royal square. There's just so much to look at. The food is beautiful. Um, they're famous for their yogurt. Um, again, I think you call it yogurt. Yeah, they're famous yeah. for the yogurt. <laughs> yogurt. Um, they call it. The, they say they've got the best yogurt in the world, and it was really good. Um, we went, it's called Juju, I had a look, it's called Juju Dao. And it's supposed to be the richest, creamiest yogurt on earth. Um, and it cost us, we got it in an earthenware bowl from this place who, it's called the King of Curds, and it cost 10 pence. Um, he also took us up to Nagakot, which is really worth going. If somebody can't do a trek, Nagakot's worth going to. Nagakot's at about 2,200 metres. And he took us up there in the morning, up in a, it's a ridge on a hill on the Kathmandu Valley, but it looks out over some of the biggest mountains in Himalaya. So we watched the sunrise over Manaslu, which is 8,200 metres, uh, Shingapama, 8,000 metres. There were lots of 10,000 metres, and we watched the sunrise again. And this is, all, this is like about an hour out of Kathmandu. So, yeah, even we met a couple of people. There were people in their 70s and 80s who couldn't trek. But they went up there. You didn't. You could just get out of the car. It was freezing, and you could see all these mountains anyway. And so I don't think that anybody going to Nepal can still see these amazing mountains without even having to trek. It's not the same, but it's still worth going. We didn't see these mountains because we're now a lot further east than we were in Annapurna. We went to a lot of other World Heritage sites that um, were worth going to, but Patan was another one, another city-state that again was really badly damaged. And that started 250 BC, so some of the old buildings were that old that were partially destroyed or completely destroyed. And they let you go and see where the people are reconstructing it. The sad thing is they were saying to me that they said it would take about 20 years for them to be able to rebuild it because of the cost. They're getting a huge amount of money in to do it from America, from England, from all other countries. Uh, but they've got to have experts to redo these places because the work on them is so amazing. But they said the sad thing is within 15 years there'll be another earthquake and they'll probably be back to where they were. So they know it's just, it's going to be an ongoing battle. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, we flew to, then we flew to a, another town called Bharatpur, which is in the southwest of Nepal. It's on the border of India. And it's more hilly rather than mountains. You can see the mountains in the distance. But um, Bharatpur is famous for Chitwan National Park. And if anybody knows me, they know I love animals. Chitwan was one of the most amazing travel, ex um, travel experiences to see wild animals I've ever seen. 
we went, it's World Heritage listed. We stayed at a place that I got from an English magazine actually called, um, oh, what's it called? Wanderlust magazine. Okay. And they said that, one of the, and Lightning Planet recommended it because it's won awards for being the most ecologically sensitive uh, place to visit wildlife in the world. It won an award. It's called Tiger Tops. And um, Tiger Tops was just amazing. They still have elephants uh, that many of the other resorts or lodges in the national park, you go on the elephants on their backs and go for a you know you go for a jungle trek on the elephants, but you know the research is telling us more and more that that's actually quite harmful to elephants. Um, so you, these ones you don't actually walk with. You sorry you don't actually get on. You back you walk with them, and you have to you develop. They want you to develop rapport with them. So you go down when you meet them. You go down. You walk with them with the hatuts um, who look after them. And they will go down to the river, you'll collect elephant grass, which is one of their favourite foods. You'll go with them, collect the grass, you'll walk back to the place, and then you make these elephant biscuits, which are the size of bricks, full of grains and everything. You tie them up, you make them for them, and then you hand feed the elephants. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it is. And my wife got down and actually met, was, she had, they wanted, she's a scientist, they wanted to do some scientific research, and they let her be involved, so she was measuring their feet. So she was down under their feet, if you can imagine. It's amazing, these massive creatures, and she was down around their feet measuring the circumference of their, of their, of their feet. Um, we put down, yeah, they were just the most magnificent creatures, and you really interact with them. You're allowed to wash them. Um, and it's, you know, you, you see here how they're cruelly they can be treated in Nepal and India and Thailand. This is the exact opposite. You can see why they've won the awards. And then once they've got your, once they know you, you then go out into the jungle and you go walking with them. So they one walks in front, one walks behind, and you're in between. So there was four of us plus the National Park Guide, and you're walking through jungle. Sometimes the grass was three metres high, and in this jungle are tigers, leopards, bears, wild elephants, and wild one-horned uh, one rhinos. And they could be anywhere. Um, and I said, is this safe? And they said, yeah, 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 you'll be safe. Tigers, the only thing that scares a tiger is an elephant. The only thing that scares a bear or a leopard are, are tigers and elephants. And the only thing that scares a rhino is an elephant. So they said, you'll be safe. And interestingly, while we were there in another part of Chitwan, you can also do uh, walking treks without elephants. And an American tourist did that and he got killed. He was um, trampled by a rhino while we were there. Um, oh. But we didn't see tigers. We heard them. We heard them growling in the distance. I don't know what I would have been like seeing one on foot anyway. I, I'd seen them in India, so I was quite happy not to see one on foot, as beautiful as they are. Um, but we did see um, lots of deer, and we saw the most incredible sightings of one-horned rhinos. Um, walking, so we came across a mother and calf in this open field. It came out of the jungle, and there they were feeding on the grass. And you're not allowed to, you're only allowed to get 10 meters from them for safety reasons. Yeah. But of course, they that's your rule, but they come up to you by the end of it. The, the calf and the mother were only about three, four meters from us, 
So I got some absolutely beautiful photos, and they were there for about they were there for about ten minutes, twenty minutes, um, getting some incredible photos. They didn't seem to care less about us. And in fact, I thought being a young mother and calf, they might be very protective. She didn't seem to care less about us. Um, and then the guide said, look, in the distance, there's another one. Let's go and see that one. So we could see it right in the distance. This was a completely different experience. We were probably about 200 meters away and it turned and he said, oh, this is a male. It was almost twice the size of the mother. He told us later it was three ton. And oh. it caught the wind changed direction and it caught, Emily caught the wind. It, they've got really poor eyesight, but they've got great hearing and great smell and it must have smelled us it turned around and put its head down like a um, bull charging and it and it did like a bull did like it rubbed its paw on the ground three times and then came at us and i've never seen an animal so big in my life three tons move so quickly within within about 10 seconds it was almost on us i didn't and, and you don't know what to do you were you feel like you're frozen to the ground. You'd, people said, did you get a fighter? I said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> I yeah, got fighters yeah. of it before it, it charged. But you, you don't think, oh, can you just hold on while you're charging? Can I get a good shot? Yeah. Um, did you charge but fast? This, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the biggest difference was between us and that American, because we were on this with the elephants. The elephant was just amazing. She stepped in. I was right at the front. He was coming straight at me. The elephant stepped between the rhino and me. By this stage, the rhino was probably only 10 metres from me. Stepped in front of it, went back on her, well, onto her back legs, so her front legs were off the ground. She trumpeted and then hit the ground like the T-Rex in Jurassic Park and the ground shook. And when she trumpeted, I've never seen an animal look like it was wanting to kill us, turn and scampered like a scared dog. And it ran back into the jungle. It was Whoa. one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. We were that close. When I heard that, I could see why the American could have died. They are so quick and so big, but beautiful animals. Uh, absolutely beautiful. But here's the weird thing. You know you're in a crazy place when the National Park guide said, let's follow it now. So we actually followed it. Uh, we never caught wind of it because it was that scared of the elephant again. But my wife's favorite animals is elephants. After that, she absolutely fell in love with it, given it saved our lives. And, you know, we've got the most beautiful photo of her hugging its trunk um, and then her and it lifting Haiti up, my wife up. Um, just the most beautiful animals. They're strong. Uh, absolutely. And incredibly clever. Uh, clever. How strong and clever. There was a younger one um, that we went walking with the next day uh, down to the river again just to collect more food for it. And, they, and she... He said, "Don't." What he said in Hindi, "Don't move," because they get trained in Hindi, the same as the Indian language. And said, "Don't move." The the instructor, the national park guide, said he's telling them them not to move, and the younger one did, just like a typical teenager, ran away. And when he was coming back, um, it was getting scolded. He got it and scolded it, told him off, told her off, and it was just like a dog. You know, when dog gets get told off, they drop their heads. This massive elephant dropped its head like a like a dog that had been realized had been naughty it was uh, just the most beautiful creatures um but so cared for there um you know if anybody looks at tiger tops you'll see why it's won awards for its ecological sensitive um yeah, yeah. 
The last thing we did, which was really last thing I'll, I'll talk about, which was worth doing as well. One of the other parts in Tokotop, it's on a, it's on a major river. And they also take you on a river safari where you're on a canoe, um, a motorized canoe. And um, you see so much wildlife along there. We didn't see any of the big cats or the uh, bears that they said we could. We saw lots of monkeys and deer. We saw mugger crocodiles, which are very prevalent in India and uh, Nepal, three meter. Scary looking crocodiles. But the best things we saw, which are really rare, I think there's only 3,000, maybe 300. There's so few of them in the world. And we saw five of them were garial crocodiles. Do you know garial crocodiles? I don't know. So no, at least I, I must have seen a picture, right? But Yeah, I think if you saw one, you'd know one. They're, they're five metres long, so they're massive. They're one of the biggest crocodiles, but they're harmless. Their noses are like sawfish. They go, their noses are almost a metre long and they're narrow. And all they can do is catch fish. They're the weirdest looking crocodiles. They look like a crocodile until you get to its snout. And its snout is a long, narrow, um, like one metre long, like a row of teeth. But it's, but you could, it's only about the width of a hand, its actual um, muzzle. Um, the most bizarre looking creatures all sunning themselves on the river. And we finished off by having a sundown and they had some, had drinks while the sun was setting on the river. Great way to finish our holiday. So that was our holiday. Chris, we then flew back to Kathmandu and flew home. Um, so I guess we did. We wanted to. We didn't know if we'd ever go to Nepal again. So we thought, what do we want to do? We wanted to do a trek. We wanted to see the wildlife of Chitwan, and we wanted to see the cities, um, the, you know, the historical places, and we wanted to do homestays and try and contribute to the economy because the, uh, yeah. you know, that's shattered by how much damage there is and how many people died. And we did it. So many people lost their homes that we'd spoken to that were still living in families, other homes or friends' homes who were waiting for their homes to be rebuilt. And um, what I will say, a real positive little addition was when I went back one year later, you know, only four months ago. Yeah. So much had happened in that one year. They've got they've rebuilt so much of Bhaktapur and Bhattar. It's still earthquake damaged badly, but I can't believe how much they've done in a year. It's amazing how much work they've put in. That's incredible. So how much better it is now than it was. For sure. Well, that's really so good that to hear, actually. Trip. Thank you. That's, that's, that was my trip. Did you want me to talk about uh, the, uh, the tip about Everest? <laughs> yes. Yeah, let's do it. I, I, mean, I mean, first of all, wow. <laughs> that Nepal trip sounds incredible. It but was. You've... It was one of the most amazing three weeks of our life. Yeah, amazing. Ticks so many boxes. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And that's why I think Nepal is amazing because you get wildlife, you get history, and of course you get the mountains. I think people just think of Nepal as being the mountains, but the history and the cities and the wildlife are just, yeah, they're, they're, you, you see animals you won't see anywhere else in the world. For sure. For yeah. sure. Um, yeah, so let's let's briefly get into Everest Base Camp. So uh, essentially, uh, to, to the listeners, James came and we spoke about India last month, which again, I recommend you go and check out. But in the conversations around the podcast, we were talking about Nepal and I, and I was saying how I've, I've got another person who's wanting to talk about doing the Everest Base Camp solo. And James mentioned that he's had a bit of a, uh, I suppose, not, unfortunately, not unique 
experience, uh, although you'd very much like it to be as few people as possible who, ex- who experience it. But he still has that. And I, I think it's really good for those listening. You know, if you're listening to this, you like adventure. So it's always good to yeah. talk about altitude and, and some anecdotes and some tips and advice. So, yeah. So, yeah, James, let's um, let's talk briefly about your Everest Base Camp anecdote then. Yeah. So I won't talk about the whole trip, but I'll talk about the end point when you're getting up to the um, base camp, when you're getting mm. hot. Um, Lachlan, my son, um, you know, he's extremely fit plays high-level tennis, uh, he's a very fit boy. Um, and um, I started noticing, we got to Namchi Bazaar and he said he had a few bad headaches, that's about 3,400 metres. We went on Diamox, they told us not to. Um, and we did report it to the chef and she said, he said, no, look, it's better not, he'll adjust because you do acclimatisation days. And he did a bit, but when we got to a place called Dingbashe, just before Dingbashe, which is you're up to about 4,600 metres. He started getting really quite sick. Um, we we're walking along the path and he would, within every 10 steps, he'd vomit. Oh. In the end, he was vomiting blood, not from, not because it was dangerous. He, he was vomiting that much that his vessels are bursting. And um, he had the most violent headaches as well, particularly at night. You know, the street between Nanchi and Bazaar and Dingbashe, we do acclimatisation. Every night he'd wake up and I'd see him next to me, just, you know, hand in his, head in his hands. Um, he said, I just can't sleep. He couldn't sleep because the headaches were so violent. Um, now, he, he got it, Lachlan got it um, pretty bad, but not too bad. Not so bad that we had to turn back, but they, with the company we went through again, same company we went through in um, Annapurna, extremely professional, and they put Lachlan into an oxygen chamber. They carry a portable oxygen chamber, and that was a, not a lifesaver for Lachlan. He wouldn't have died. He was, but he had quite bad cerebral edema, which is one of the two things you can get. So swelling of his brain. So he was getting a bit confused. He was getting extreme nausea, like I said, and um, yeah. violent headaches. When he went into that oxygen chamber, it was completely changed him. He came out so much better, so much better that we could continue on and had a great trip. Yeah. Um, but there was another guy in his late 20s who actually worked for the tour company that we went with. He actually does, this is the irony, he actually is the one who creates, he does all their organising of the treks and he had just done Annapurna Circuit. He'd gone to Ladakh in India. So he'd been in high altitude before. And this is the other interesting thing was, it seems to be speaking, obviously we spoke about it a lot after. It's so variable, your response to um, elevation. But the one key that both Lachlan and this guy had was they both were fit. They were both, Lachlan's just 20 and this guy was um, 28, I think, maybe 29. So they're both young and they raced up the mountain. This guy particularly was racing up the mountain because he was redoing their brochures. So he was racing ahead of us to get photos. He had amazing cameras so he could zoom in on us, but from a distance. Then next minute he was behind us on the trek and he was up, down, up, down mountains. Big pardon? He was dancing all over. Yeah, and the chief Sherpa, he was actually, this was his actual boss. So the chief Sherpa said to me later, Rinzen said it was hard because he said 
he told him to settle down. But in fact, this was his own boss, really. He was yeah. the manager of the Himalayan region. Lovely guy, by the way. You wouldn't meet a nicer guy. This poor guy what went through. We went to a little, we were going up to Dingbashe, and that's where Lachlan started getting symptoms. Of course, I was more worried about him. And I noticed when we were having a break in a town, he was lying on his back. We're having morning tea in a little village called Shamari. And this is where Lachlan was doing okay at this okay at this point. And he never had to be anything else other than just go slow. But this guy was lying on his back. And I said, are you all right? He said, yeah, I'm just feeling a bit headachy. And he looked really pale. And Rinzen said, get up, get up. You've got to get up. He obviously knew why. He said, don't lie down, don't sleep. Oh. Anyway, we started the trek. I didn't take any notice. And then about half, half an hour later, when we're walking up the mountain, we hear this click plop, click plop, and it was a horse. And there was this guy who had been super fit. He was on the back of a horse now because he couldn't keep going. He got up to Dingbashe, which was absolutely beautiful camp, one of the most beautiful places um, yeah, at the foot of Lotse and um, Amma Dublin, beautiful place to stay. And we got up there and he got worse. And we were all, this was nighttime now, uh, 8.30 at night, there's outdoor dunnies, outdoor loos, toilets. And at 8.30 at night, it was a crowd of, there was only two toilets. So I went out as a man can behind the actual loos to, to, to finish what I had to do. And um, next minute I heard one of the girls scream out, help, help. I went out, ran around to the loos and there was this guy standing almost about falling down a stairway and he was swaying like it was a gale force wind. Yeah. And he'd lost all his bowel control. Um, and I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm sitting on the toilet, just let me go. And I said, no, no, you're not sitting on the toilet, you're standing outside. So at this stage I raced and I said, can you hold him to the girl? And she did. I raced to um, the chief Sherpa, called him, we got him in. We got we went back to him and we carried him in to the, um, the communal room and luckily that same place where Lachlan and Lachlan had already been in the oxygen they put him in that but he was pale he was breathing hyperventilating but really shallow yeah um, I've got a medical background so I knew he had pulmonary edema you could actually yeah. hear as he was breathing fluid you could actually hear him you could it was like he was gurgling water yeah. this was blood in his lungs. Yeah, um, I only was sweating, um, cold sweat, didn't know where he was, his eyes were rolling back up in his head. The oxygen was kept going, they were giving, they had to pump the oxygen all night, hand, it's it a hand machine doing it. The poor guys were with him the whole night, the Sherpas, doing that all night. I actually woke up, I remember going to bed saying to Lachlan what had happened, and Lachlan was still sick. And I said, I don't know if he's going to make the night. Now, he did make the night, but he had to be airlifted back to um, Kathmandu. So emergency retrieval would have cost 50000 if he didn't have insurance. And he had to go to intensive care for many, many days with acute pulmonary edema. Um, he was the, the, the emergency medicine doctor said he was, if he hadn't been, if they didn't have that portable oxygen tank, he would have died. Yeah. Um, if he had actually uh, gone, if he had been any more long, longer, as soon as it's first like the chopper, even if he'd been another hour, even with the oxygen uh, chamber, he would have died. It was that close to death. And he, this guy had done mountain climbing before. 
Um, the difference was he raced up too quickly. Yeah. So I just thought that was worthwhile sharing because it's an amazing place, base camp. Yeah, it is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. Um, having said that, I think the Annapurna region was just as spectacular. But you do have to respect you're at elevation. It's not a hard climb. It, uh, it, there's some steep sections, but it's not that hard technically. Annapurna, the walk we did up the Copper Ridge was much harder technically. There's a lot more steep sections. There were parts we actually had to use. They had um, metal railings. You had to drag yourself up. None of that going up to base camp. But it's the elevation is really extreme and um, it can creep up on you so quickly as it did with this guy. And so I guess the, why I wanted to share that and you thought it was worthwhile sharing was, yeah. yeah, I think the message is go slow. They talk about that. And the great thing about somebody my age, I'm still reasonably fit, but I'm not middle-aged, is that I don't go fast anymore. Um, and all three cases that I've seen, my son, this guy, and the guy in um, Annapurna who got a bit of sickness, had common features that were really fit, and they were really young, uh, really young. And I asked Rinzen, the chief sherpa, and he said, the most common groups are 20-somethings or doctors. They're the two groups who get sick. And the reason doctors That's do is that doctors... But, well, yeah, because they think they know if they're going to be sick or not. But the biggest issue is, one of the biggest, as you probably know, is as cerebral edema, swelling of the brain. You don't think clearly. No, no. And, yeah, and so you don't know what you're doing. And... He said one of the guys was he knew was a doctor who died for that same reason. We um, we had a friend of ours who did Everest Base Camp, and one of his best friends died on that trek, who was a doctor for that same reason. Said, let me go, I'm a doctor, I know what I'm doing, and he didn't wake up in the night, and he was only in his 30s. So it's, you know, it's it's dangerous. It's it's only dangerous if, you let, if you'd go slow, use your climatisation days, you can be great. I didn't have even a headache. I, uh, the, I had more of a headache going up and a pain. I had no symptoms at all. And um, and I think the real key is go slow, enjoy it, take as it's many shots anywhere. with the camera as you like. It's no race. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and for the record you don't... as well, the reason that they were saying, because um, you, you rightfully said that they said when he was lying on his back, you should say, get up, sit up, sit up, sit up. And that's that's the pulmonary edema, edema in the lungs. You're not meant to lie down, are you? Because no, no, absolutely not. Yeah, gravity just then fills the rest of the lungs up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that that was just a cautionary tale. But don't get me wrong. I'm only, yeah. If you hadn't spoken about Everest before, I would tell you it's one of the most amazing experiences to do. Yeah. It should be done. It's one. It is one of the biggest highlights of my life. Um, and I'm so glad I've done it. Yeah, definitely do it. It's just just take it slow i mean i'm, I'm still going to carry and, bigger and bigger mountains on yeah. my own trips so yeah. and the other thing i would say is you really should go I, I saw people go up there without any guides and one girl that i met in dingbache she had no guides and she had been she got food poisoning in um namchi bazaar and was sick for four days ended up on drip then she ended up spraining her ankle between two places and luckily with my my profession i could actually treat her ankle and actually strap it so she could get going but she said if she hadn't been close to that camp she doesn't know how she could have got there it you you can't take those places lightly no <laughs> and temperatures are so cold it doesn't take long before hypothermia kicks in 
Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and frostbite's a genuine risk. We went in winter, you know, and it was a genuine risk, risk when we were there. And, um, but as long as you're sensible, go with a guide or a porter um, at least, even if not in a formal group. It's one of the best things you could ever do. And it is, and it isn't that hard technically. It's just the cold and the oxygen that have issues. Yeah. Well, we are um, running a little shy on time, but there's yeah. one question I will always ask at the end of this. So you have had such a wonderful time in Nepal. And you, I think actually, it's not often you can say it's about a certain trip, but I, I feel like you've really thoroughly explored the country rather than, you know, in the UK going to the Lake Districts and saying, hey, I've been to the UK and ticking off. <laughs> um, or London and ticking off the entire country. Um, but for you, uh, and let's include Everest Base Camp as well, just to really broaden yeah. it out. And I asked so, you this in India too. What's one moment that you would relive? Yeah, the best would be when leaving Dingbashe, we went up to a um, mountain. We went up a valley called the Chukong Ri, which is a valley. Um, goes, <clears throat> excuse me, to the opposite side of Everest Base Camp to the Motsi. And you go to the base camp of uh, where they have got a memorial to Lotsi. That to me is the most amazing thing. We um, to be standing in front of Lotsi, Amadablam, Nupsi, and Everest, surrounding you in a sort of a semicircle. Um, and this valley is so rarely seen. The only people who do it are do the they do the, what they call the three passes. And we did the first. We went up three quarters up that pass. That is probably the most memorable day just to be surrounded by the world's biggest the fourth biggest and the fifth biggest mountain on earth because Makalu too just to be ringed by the biggest mountains on earth and be yeah. again there's a common theme would be I like being in places where nobody else goes and that place was a place that nobody else goes to um, yeah. that was to me probably the most special and to share it with my son who this stage was actually fully recovered and just to see the, the, the joy in his face, you know, that he was feeling better and he could really start to enjoy the mountains again. Yeah, that was that was a really special day. Perfect. Perfect. Well, James, listen, thank you so much for coming to us and talking about your time in Nepal. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you. That really was an incredible trip. And I really enjoyed listening to him. I liked that he didn't just do the Annapurna circuit. He actually went down and explored Nepal itself. But if you are still eager for more Nepal uh, ex exploration and adventure, then we have done an episode on Everest Base Camp just solely on its own. I have interviewed John Gupta, and we talk briefly about Everest in the interview with him too. I will put those down in the link below, or you can go and find them wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to come on the show, please do email me on btmtravelpod at gmail.com. Subscribe, share with your friends if you fancy, and I'll see you in the next one.